0: And so I want to pick up where we left off in, uh, in, in chapter 4 of the book of Jonah. The last couple of weeks, I want to give you a quick recap and uh, and, and maybe just a little bit of a, a, a segue for this. But uh, we're going to try to pick up and end this next week, um, at the end of... The chapter hopefully uh, by this next week. I, I want to warn you, if it was up to me, I would spend like the next year in this chapter. There's so much going on here, but because I don't want to abuse anyone's attention span, uh, we're going to wrap up this next week. And so the last couple of weeks we've been seeing this book, I would argue, has every single thing you need to know uh, about the world, about who God is, about who people are, is in seed form in the book of Jonah. In a narrative form, in this literary work, like this story of what God has done through this person, almost every single thing you want to know about who God is, about why the world is the way that it is, why people are the way that they are, they're all right here. And how, responds, how God responds to the way that people are, they're all right here. So I want to read for you. We'll start at the end of of chapter 3 and verse 10. After Jonah has run from God and then miraculously been delivered by God through an unbelievable means, through a fish, he ends up where God means for him to be all along. Three days later is right where God wanted him to be. Hint, hint, Jesus, resurrection, right? And then now he is in the place where God's called him to be, to resume the mission, to resume the difficult thing that exposed him for who he was, the thing he wanted to keep a secret, got exposed He gives an amazing amount of grace and deliverance and then puts him right back on the mission. And we realize that the grace of God restores us to the purpose of God in the world. And Jonah speaks out the word that God originally had him to speak to the people that he would have hated, the the Ninevites. This would have been the capital of the first modern empire. We see eight centuries before Christ and the Assyrians. And he goes and he says, stop what you're doing with all your violence. And they begin to... Repent. So in verse 10, we find after they've responded, repented, God says this in verse 10 of chapter 3 When God saw what they did, that is, that they repented, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them. And he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly. And he was angry. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he could see what would become of the city. It is my prayer that as we read the words of this book, they become more than ink on a page, but they begin to be the words of God for his people. So last week we saw that Jonah, in a virtually comical way, has a radical turn from the end of chapter 3 to the beginning of chapter 4. The thing that God sent Jonah to do came to be, and you would expect in verse there would be a verse 11 of chapter 3 where he speaks a word of judgment to these people. They repent, they turn from their evil ways, And in chapter 3, verse 11, should say something like, And Jonah returned home rejoicing. But it's not there. And instead, we see the last chapter to be a reflection upon the hindrance of God's people being about God's purpose. Last week, we saw that quite literally, one of the first things that was a hindrance was that Jonah, it says, became violently angry. Verse 1 because God did not deal violently with the violence of the Ninevites. Right? And so the evil that he spoke out against actually began to consume him. That first verse, it, it literally is translated, and he became evil with evil, or he became furious with violent evil. The same evil that the, the Ninevites turned from starts to well up in him when God does not send that same violence on those people. We saw that one of the greatest hindrances for us to be about the purpose of God in our city for its sake and for God's glory is that often the thing that you hate the most about a person or hate the most about a people or a city is the thing that's probably, if you're not careful, the most true about you. You The thing that you hate about your old man, if you're not careful, is probably so aggravating because it's welling up in you. And until we have a radical experience of God's grace over that very thing, we won't be fit, we won't be able to speak a word of value to anyone because we wouldn't have received that word ourselves. So the book of Jonah gives this beautiful picture as we see that our mission is, in fact, our message of good news. It's one of humble pursuit. God relentlessly pursues and seeks us out. He never stops. So from the beginning, Jonah runs from God. God pursues him, convicts him, he's thrown overboard, God seeks him out, right? So this is something that's big for the last couple of, of decades. It's what's called a seeker-sensitive church, all right? We are a seeker-sensitive church, but not like you might think. We're a seeker-sensitive church because we believe there is one seeker that matters, and it is the relentless pursuing God of the universe. And he, in, in, a, in a gracious and miraculous way, just seeks and waits at just the right time, the book of Romans tells us, Christ died for the ungodly. At just the right time, he's waiting to deliver people. And, and we see he is relentless about even pursuing the Ninevites. These are pagans. These are polytheists. These are not worshippers of Yahweh. These are violent people. They set the trajectory for their modern, violent empire. They're the first ones to do this. And they did it very, very efficiently. And yet God relentlessly pursues them, sends in a merciful act Jonah to send a word of warning to them. And then Jonah we see here, again, in his own heart, butting up against a need for ongoing grace. And so while Jonah's transformation by God's grace in the fish propels him to mission, the mission exposes his need for ongoing transformation by grace. And so the thing that was good that changed him, the deliverance that God God gave to him in the belly of a fish of all places, right? Of all unbelievable places, is exposed again when he gets back on God's purpose. We see this beautiful thing, the miraculous turn of a city. Something that, again, might seem crazy for us, but that's only a Western thing. If you tell people that a continent or a, or a culture could be transformed in the, in the continent of Africa or the continent of South America, they would say, yes, we've seen it happen over the last couple of decades. But I know our own Western dispensation is kind of like, well, this can't really happen. And we begin to realize that God never calls us to anything because we are able. God calls us to things because he is able. If you could get the credit for it, if it's something you could conceive of or you could rationally think is possible, then it's probably not God. God tends to work bigger and greater and so now we have exposed, I think, in this particular passage, what I want to focus on today is if the evil that Jonah was so angry about was actually welling up inside of him and it and it hindered him from being a part of God's purpose, then I think what we see here are some other features that keep us from mission. I think we can apply these to the individual life of a Christian, someone who says that we're gonna bear the image of God through our redeeming work of Jesus Christ. We have a message of God's relentless pursuit. For the world, it's God's vector then to save us and and send us toward our city. We we exist here for a purpose, not for our own sake, but for His. And the other hindrances, I think we'll see at least three different features of this that that might guide us towards our own purpose as individuals, but even as a church and our city. Are these you'll see in these kind of features of what what Jonah is wrestling with, and the first one is forgiveness. You'll see at the beginning of this what it is, what forgiveness really is, and certainly in a comical fashion as only the Bible can do as it's honest about human people, even, mind you, highly religious people, people who are, who think they have all the answers, people who think they've got it figured out, are the ones who are the... Everyone can see, totally don't get it right? So what forgiveness is and what it is not, Jonah misses the boat. But then he exposes something else you'll see in this passage, his own entitlement. You see that phrase that, that God asks him, what do you do well? Literally, what right do you have? What are you entitled to? And the last thing you'll see that is pushed forward in the way that, that God convicts him with this question is the picture of non-retaliation. I want to show you this is a gospel identity even from the beginning of the Christian movement, from the apostles to the first church on. So the first thing that this passage gives us is a clear definition of forgiveness. What it is and what it is not. And we find out that forgiveness is an identity. It's something that, that gives us a sense of who we are. And, and that is the thing that propelled him to mission, right? So the forgiveness that he experienced from the low estate that he was in in chapter 2 propelled him into the mission of chapter 3. And now we see the ongoing need for that kind of forgiveness and grace, which again, God is relentless in his pursuit and freely giving us grace in a bountiful measure. But, we see a picture here of what forgiveness is not. After Jonah speaks the word that by God's grace he's forgiven and propelled to speak, you see him showing what forgiveness is not. And we come to find out that this is an identity problem. If you want, you can look at this later, but 2 Kings chapter 14 tells us exactly who Jonah is. And I want to tell you this. There was was a king of Israel, Jeroboam II, and he began to reign in what was the capital city of Samaria. You can read about this all throughout the city, the capital city, and sieges with outside peoples, even people like this, the Assyrians, all throughout 2 Kings. It's kind of the history of God working through his people, Israel. And it says that Jeroboam II reigned 41 years, some of these kings last a, a generation. Some of these kings last a decade. Some of them not even that. But it says in verse 24 of 2 Kings 14 that Jeroboam, it says, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam the son of Nebat, that's his father, because remember he's Jeroboam II, which he made Israel to sin. So this king was not a good king. Jeroboam II led people to sin, just like the bad leader that his father was. In verse 25 it says that he restored the border of Israel from Labo Hamath as far as the Sea of Arabah according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet who was from Gath-Hefer. So Jeroboam the second, kind of a a military expansionist policy that restored, most likely vengefully, the the areas that had been lost to their enemies up to that point. And it says in verse 26, the Lord saw that the affliction of Israel was very bitter, for there was none left, bond or free, and there was none to help Israel. But the Lord had not said that He would blot out the name of Israel from under heaven. So He saved them by the hand of Jeroboam son of Joash. So Jeroboam II was God's instrument, even though he was an ungodly man. God used him sovereign over all these things, things that even look out of control. Think about that one. God uses them for his glory, for the good of his people, and he, he engages in a bunch of expansionist policies. He goes on the war path to, to reclaim cities and territories that had been taken over by the enemy. And how did he do it? What was his secret weapon? What was the thing that he had, as, the, as, as most of the, uh, the Old Testament will say, that gives the Israelites victory in battle? He had the word of the Lord. He had the prophet Jonah in his back pocket. And you see this in Elijah and Elisha as well. If you look at the beginning of 1 Kings, all the way to the first half of 2 Kings, is that God gives the victory, not people. And he typically, at this particular time, in, interferes and communicates with some ungodly leaders through a prophet, and whether through judgment or deliverance, all sorts of miraculous things happen. And it usually happens, even to the point where there's a, there's a story where, uh, uh, I believe it was second, second Kings chapter 5, 4, 5, and 6, there's a, this weird siege of Samaria, but before, uh, the king is like, every time we try to kill uh, the Israelites, they figure out the plot. And they're like, well, how does this keep happening? And they say, it's Elisha. Elisha, the prophet of God, keeps foiling the plots and telling, he knows what you're doing. And so what does he do? Instead of going after the king, he goes after the prophet. And he goes and he finds the prophet. Right? This is this beautiful picture. Surrounds the prophet. The prophet's servant walks out and says, Oh my, that's the, that's the nice way of saying what he actually says in the Hebrew. And he's surrounded by an army early in the morning. And Elisha is like, Calm down. Those that are with us are greater than those that are with him. And he says, Open your eyes. And when he opens his eyes, he sees, great phrase, Shows up between Elijah and Elisha, chariots of fire surrounding the enemy army. Those that are with us are greater than those with them. And instead of destroying the army, Elisha gives the army back to the Israelite king, who wants to kill them, and then sets them free. They feast together. So you get This is the kind of relationship that exists between the prophet and the king. What the prophet says, the king does, and the king holds sway sometimes over the prophet. So we find something a little bit about Jonah here. He's kind of the means by which this expansionist king is able to conquer and reclaim territory for Israel. His identity is on this. So much so that when God says, go and speak to the enemy, what does he do? He runs. And when he speaks to them, what does he say? I can't believe you're going to forgive them. Do you get it? Do you see his identity coming out? His identity wasn't in God's word for him and his purpose for him in the world. His identity was probably in how cool and powerful it felt to be best friends with the king who wins battles. All the while knowing, just like Elisha, hey, how'd they win that battle? Well, they got prophet Jonah with him. I mean, how, are they gonna, how, how else were they going to win? They got Jonah with him. God uses this prophet, and we find out that his identity, the identity for Jonah, is not in God's grace and redemption, not in his purpose for him, but... Jonah's identity is in this expansionist, militaristic, conquering of his nation. He wants to see his people win and others lose. And he butts right up against God's purpose for him. He butts right up against God's ministry and message that he means for Jonah to speak. Because this is what you find out. If your identity isn't anything else, if your identity isn't as a forgiven person, then it will be in vengeance or avoidance, and mission will be impossible. Deconstruct that backwards. He's struggling. He doesn't know what he's supposed to do because his identity up to that point was in a a vengeful, I I mean, he's an expansionist leader. Get back. Get back what they took from our Father. Get back what's rightfully ours. You hear this? Let's get back what we used to have. Let's get back. Even though, remember Solomon says, don't ask why can't we be like the good old days. That's foolish. That's polite. But he wants to get back to that. And his identity is in restoring that. In the end, since his identity isn't in God's deliverance that we clearly experience from chapter 2 to chapter 3, then it makes his mission impossible. And we can, we can draw a straight parallel there, I would say. If, if you're currently floundering, if you're like, what do I do? I don't understand what I do next. What's my next decision? I would push on this. The reason you're confused about what you do next is because you don't know who you are. And because your identity is in flux, so is your purpose. But when your identity is in what someone who is great has esteemed you to be, well, then you know what to do. What's the most radical thing about you? I'm forgiven. I'm restored. You? Yes, me. That changes your purpose. That changes your vector. That changes what you want to talk about in every conversation. That becomes the thing you want to promote. You will promote and evangelize for your God. It just depends on what that God is. And in this case, when your identity is in what God has radically done for you, clearly no, no one would know this better than Jonah, someone who would just like been spat out of a fish then you know what to do but when your identity isn't as a forgiven person then it makes forgiveness impossible and it sets you on a trajectory you see what's interesting about this is that forgiveness and i want to push on this because we see both of them in this particular case and you see both of them in the world and even sometimes infiltrating circles that would call themselves christians forgiveness is neither vengeance nor avoidance Forgiveness is neither paying back nor simply letting it slide. That's a big deal. Because what you find out is that avoidance or resignation and vengeance are things that God speaks directly against. Let me show you where this comes to a head. In Matthew chapter 18, beginning in verse 21, Peter comes up to Jesus and says, Lord, I got a question about forgiveness. He says, How often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Seven times? And Jesus said to him, I don't say seven times, but seven sevens or seventy-seven. It could be 770. He just he basically is like, you think it's this? Like, you know, a million, and he's like, a zillion, right? He's just like seventy-seven, seven sevens, more than what you currently think. You think the limits here, the grace of God is more. So in verse 23, he says, Therefore, the kingdom of heaven, what's it like in God's kingdom? maybe compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. And when he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. That's like, again, that's like a zillion dollars, right? That's more money than you can make in your lifetime. And when he began to settle, it says that he found out that this Verse 25, since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and his children all that he had and payment was to be made. So the servant fell on his knees before the king, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a 100 denarii, which is like a a day's wage or a month's or a year's wage compared to like the zillion dollars that he owed. This is a a, a manageable sum, right? And he says to him, says he went out, found the servant that owed him this, this payable wage, seized him, began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. But he refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. Now, when his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, understandably. And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Forgiveness then is a reflection of an identity of being forgiven. We can forgive and move out in mercy, not in vengeance or not avoidance, because we have an identity of forgiveness. And the parable tells us exactly what happens when that's not the case. If someone forgives you of a zillion dollars, but that's not a big deal to you, that doesn't mean much to you, well, then you will be unmerciful just like the servant. We saw this a couple weeks ago. If God hasn't forgiven you of much, you won't go to many. Your mission and your purpose in life will be small because your debt to God will be small but your sense of identity and value that God has invested in you will be great such that it overflows into your purpose. And so God doesn't allow this kind of vengeance. And so that's the thing about vengeance. Vengeance is actually dealing with your hurt to feel better about being hurt. I'll put it this way. Vengeance is confronting your hate and (laughs) anger, it's confronting your hate and typo anger as you confront with the wrongdoer, right? So, so dealing with your hate and anger as you're like coming face to face with the wrongdoer, okay? Whereas avoidance is confronting your hate and anger by avoiding the wrongdoer, right? So you've got this hate and anger because you've been hurt. Someone has wronged you, betrayed you, wounded you in some deep and profound, profound manner, And vengeance is to alleviate that pain by taking it out on the wrongdoer. Avoidance, or just resignation, is dealing with that pain by banishing the wrongdoer. By simply going away. And notice, neither is forgiveness, even though a lot of times this is what gets mixed up. Vengeance is to simply pummel the wrongdoer for the sake of feeling better. I'm hurt, so I'm going to hurt you back. Resignation, though, is just letting it go. It can't be fixed. It won't be able to undo it. I might as well just avoid it. I might as well move on. It doesn't confront the wrongdoer. In fact, it wants nothing to do with the wrongdoer. Here's where this, I think, will put us. Remember we talked about like the gospel is this other way radically different than the religious or the irreligious. So also, even though you may kind of identify towards one and the other and the gospel will pull you away from it, so also the gospel pulls you away from a disposition that you probably have on, on a regular basis. You probably will tend toward one or the other. more than the, More than the other, right? So this is, you tend to be a vengeful person or you tend to be an avoider. Right? You want to lash back out or you want to run away. And this is deeper than just fight or flight. This is deeper. This is like a spiritual, existential disposition. Now here's the odd part: this. If you look closely, some people are are these different um, these different tendencies in different places. Like with your family, you, you may be a vengeful person, but people not your family, you run. You're an avoider, or vice versa. But in a, it usually have a pattern here, and I think it points to an existential an existential problem that you have misunderstood what God has done with your own sin and your value of forgiveness such that you, know, you don't have a value or a sense of identity as a forgiven person makes forgiveness of others impossible and you lean into vengeance or you lean into avoidance. And both of them, again, both of them are, are extremely self-centered. By excluding the wrongdoer permanently and avoiding, you're saying you don't want any relationship with the wrongdoer. I never want a relationship with you. I put you outside of my influence. I put you outside of my community. And you aren't thinking of helping the people that this person might hurt later. This person's wronged you, but you don't don't care about this person going on a tear of hurting other people just like you. You're just like, I don't want to know about it, out of sight, out of mind. You put them out of your community. But on the other hand, vengeance is is this way of dealing with hate and anger by confronting. You want to get them to see how bad they've, hurt you by hurting them back but vengeance isn't the answer in fact vengeance is the lack of justice that isn't something human beings are entitled to vengeance is only only available to the righteous because otherwise it will be meted out in unrighteous manners Think of it this way. Miroslav Wolf puts it this way. He says, forgiveness is not a substitute for justice. Forgiving someone does not mean that you demand no change in the perpetrator and no righting of wrongs. In fact, forgiveness provides a framework in which the quest for properly understood justice can fruitfully be pursued. He concludes with this thought. If you want justice and nothing but justice, you will inevitably get injustice. If you're always out to repay, you always overpay. You always go across the line into vengeance, into revenge. I want want to warn you, this, this means that properly experiencing and being an agent of justice means forgiveness and dealing with your hate and anger is done before you confront the wrongdoer. So let me step into a place here that across our culture, I, I think we have to be careful of. And I, Okay, so but one of the things you do not do, you don't tell anybody in America right now how to be a parent, what they should, how they should parent their kids. It's a huge idol that we have, um, and I'm going to go right after it, okay? Uh, so uh, if you're a parent, this is especially important. And there's this argument about do you spank your kids or do you not spank your kids? And I'm going to go right after that. If you spank your kids or not spank your kids, put them in timeout, whatever, whatever you choose, if you're not doing it with a heart of forgiveness, you're inflicting vengeance on your children. Regardless. The means, like the mode of discipline is not the issue. The motive is. Because it, it, this, this hurts, right? Because like if, if someone wrongs you, your first response is to get right back at them. And I th- I just think about that phrase, exacting vengeance on your children. Right? Just, how does that sound? And, and yet, here's what I would say. In, in my own very limited experience, there are people, even in this room, I've, you've confessed to me, and you would, you would testify to this. I'd, I'd love for you to share this, but even now, as grown-ups, your relationship with your parents and your family is one of vengeance. It's a feud, this, and then this. Will you do that? Fine, I'll do this. It always ends this way. It always escalates. It gets bigger and bigger. And friend, this is especially important for parents. Like You can argue about the means of discipline and upbringing all you want, but if your motive isn't forgiveness and grace, then you're probably exacting vengeance on people. You're, you're, you're disciplining. You're, you're lashing out in fury, in rage. Friend, you're, you've missed the boat. Your identity is lost. You're no longer, your identity is no longer as a forgiven person who's a minister of reconciliation. Your identity is as an entitled person, a person who deserves to be God in exact justice. But here's what I think is probably more common for most people who call themselves Christians. They're just avoiders. Most people who call themselves Christians, basically, instead of experiencing forgiveness, they just hate someone in their heart and then are kind to them to their face. But this also is not a form of forgiveness. There's no real justice here. You're not doing them a service. You're not doing anyone a real service. You just run. Even now, you're thinking of all the reasons why you want to abandon the people around you. And you want to run. And you want to try to run this whole thing again somewhere else with another group of friends. Friend, do you see both of them happening in Jonah? If you see them both, Jonah completely misses the boat on forgiveness. Because at the beginning, he wants to avoid and run, which is completely disobedient. It doesn't reflect the heart of God. But then, when he finally sort of obeys outwardly, what does he do in his own heart? He's like, I, I want them outside of my community. I want them outside of me. I don't want to be a part of this. So what do we do? How how do we respond? What is it that we do to define forgiveness rightly? You see, what I would warn you is that if you're not finding your identity as a forgiven person, then you are either avoiding conflict or you are responding in vengeance, both of which miss the gospel identity that God has sent His Son to purchase for us. And so he responds with a question, right? I'm angry, exceedingly evil with evil, right? And he was angry. And then he prayed to the Lord and says, and he accuses him of the ways in which God's forgiveness, his mercy, says his anger that's slow, his steadfast love that's abounding, he's relenting from destroying people, just bothers him. So much so that he's like, I, 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 it's better for me to die. Did you, like, that's, that's what the lack of forgiveness leaves you with, okay? It leaves you with a place where you're so bitter, you're like, I don't want to live in a world where there's a merciful God who doesn't destroy my enemies exactly like I want them to. In essence, I don't want to live in a world. I would rather die in a world in which I am not, than, than to live in a world in which uh, I am not God. I don't like what you do, God. It is better for me to die. And God in his mercy, I love this. He, he, he doesn't say like, I mean, again, remember I told, this is where like, okay, that's the end of that one. Jonah dies. This, that was a good story. Here's what not to do. But the, look how it just, merciful. Look how patient he is. He asks a question. Because what are you doing when you're asking a question, right? When he asks them a question, like a rhetorical question like this, you're not telling them what to think. You're you're trying to open their eyes to something. What patience God shows here. He says, do you do well to be angry? Literally, is it good for you to be angry? Is it right? Do you have a right to be angry? You're him calling back that identity. What a nice way of saying, Jonah, remember that time you were in a fish? Remember that time? Yeah just, oh yeah, just the other day. Remember that? Do you have a right to be angry? Do you deserve anything? Are you entitled to anything? And the second thing we see, that it's a massive hindrance to mission and to being on the purpose that God has called us to be a part of is our own sense of entitlement. The same thing, remember the, the unjust servant. Right? He was forgiven of much, but he forgot or was greedy and entitled to what the other person owed him. There's a powerful thing that Jesus puts in Matthew chapter 7. It's always taken out of context. And instead of talking about hypocrisy and humility, it's usually just something someone says to end the conversation. Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. Judge not that you not be judged. Right? Everyone knows that one, and people pull it out all the time. Like, you did something wrong. Judge not, you not. Let's not you be judged. You mean what you're saying is not wrong? Well, okay. So like this is this is used to justify all sorts of evil, right? And we trade, uh, I'm going to plead to the lesser of two evils. Well, you've got to repent of both of them either way. So just be careful how this is taken out of context. This is where it belongs. It says, for, therefore, with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. Okay, so so if someone's like, judge not, lest you be judged. All right, that same accusing tone that you took to me because you thought I was judgmental, that's the thing that you're going to be judged with, right? The measure with which you measure will be measured with you. Why? Do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log or plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Did you get that? If, you, if, if you're not living in an identity of forgiveness, like, I'm, wow, God has helped me with this plank sticking out of my eye, then you won't be helpful to the people who maybe are having a hard time seeing. And this will blow your mind. My speck, the speck in my eye, is the log in yours. The speck in your eye is the log sticking out of mine. And this is profound, especially for the avoider, because that means that without one another, we're the blind leading the blind. And unless we have an identity that God is implanted in us, He's forgiven us of much, He's delivered us like Jonah from the depths, then you will be of no earthly good to anyone. And you'll ultimately think that you deserve what you get. You'll be entitled to it. See, to forgive, you have to have a profound awareness of the massive thing that God has delivered you from. Other than that, forgiveness will be impossible for you. A person who believes that God loves them because they deserve it is completely incapable of forgiving another. I know that that person wounded you deeply. I know they hurt you in a way that just won't go away. I know that. And this is not an easy road. But friend, you will never able to even chip away at the unforgiveness you have for that person until you begin to realize the great value of God's forgiveness for you. And the only way, I mean, unless God's grace humbles you to the point that you no longer have a right to be angry, and in fact, unless God's grace doesn't affirm you to the point that you have no need to be angry, then forgiveness will continue to be impossible. Without this, without this profound awareness of God's grace in our own life, then you have to do what you're currently doing. You have to go to whatever lengths you can to make yourself look better than others. You have to. Otherwise, you'll be crushed. You'll be in an existential funk. You'll be in, a, I don't know what to do with myself. God, I'd rather die. I'd rather you take my life from me. And you have to. Isn't that the only way to kind of harbor that? At a certain point, withholding forgiveness only happens when you can convince yourself that you, under every single circumstance, are you going to say, that you're going to look at a person and go, if I had every single circumstance, them, I was raised in their home, I was taught the way they were taught, I had every single, every single environment, if I was in that environment just like them, I still would have done better. You're going to say that? You're going to look at a person and be like, if I had every single influence, I still would have made the better choice because if you're not aware of God's mercy on you, the plank that he has removed from your own eye, then that's what you have to convince yourself and here's what you may not realize, you're trying to convince everyone else. If you have that gracious wealth though, that thing that God has given you, there's an amazing thing that happens. It starts to suck away the anger. It starts to dissolve the hate maybe not immediately, but piece by piece it begins to de-escalate. And when that gracious wealth that God pours out for us on the cross starts to chip away at it, something amazing happens. You no longer have the need to be angry. And you have enough humility so that you realize you don't even have the right to be angry. And then, piece by piece, that anger starts to slip away. I want to land on this picture of the early church that I think is profound for me. There's a a book that was just recently published in the last couple years by Larry Hurtado. It's called Destroyer of the Gods, and he compiles a lot of research about the earliest Christians, and he came up with what are basically five different distinctive marks of the first Christians that he described. I love this. He describes them as offensive and attractive. The things that made the Christian movement, right? It was a man with 12 disciples that within a couple of centuries became the the world religion, right? The the religion that Rome made official and then began to spread and enforce on the world, okay? What made that happen? What community broke through all of the categories that should have made it end? And he gives five. Here's the five. More than any other community up to that point, they were the most ethnically and racially diverse. Remember, we saw Acts chapter 6. There was conflict in the church. Why? Because there was a bunch of people in the church that didn't speak the same language. And these widows over here were like, hey, I need help. And these widows over here were like, I need help in another language. And they're like, wow, we got to do something here. The gospel calls us to love both. We We better move on this. And this was a radical thing that the world had never seen. Because, remember, their new priesthood, their new ethnicity, 1 and 2 Peter tells us, was in Christ, not in some earthly inherited ethnicity. they a new ethnicity, a new people. They were more racially diverse than anyone. There was a racial reconciliation that took place by the power of the gospel. Second thing, distinctive mark, they had a radical care for the poor. Julian said it this way, you've heard me quote this before, that the Christians kept growing, because they're not only caring for their own poor, but they're caring for our poor as well. There's this radical generosity that existed because of the gospel. They didn't feel entitled to their stuff. Instead, they gave generously. There's a third one. They were anti-exposure or anti-abortion or child-killing. So now abortion isn't anything new, but it's, it's something that was radically different in a more primitive medical context, right? And so it was either dangerous or destructive or fatal or what typically was abortion for them is a a baby would be born and then it was called exposure. You just leave the baby out. You would throw the baby out. And the baby would, again, there's lots of records for this for centuries of empires. Throw the baby out and either someone would come by and take the baby and make a slave out of the baby or what would happen here is that the Christians started taking the babies in. They would take the babies. And it's powerful it, it, it was it was so countercultural, it wasn't just that they prohibited the women amongst the church from having abortions, although they did that, it was that they also had this radical care for these children and raised them as their own. They took in people that didn't even belong to them. The fourth thing, they had a radical sexual counterculture. It was the strictest most most compelling picture of sexuality that, that anyone had ever seen. Remember, it was like offensive. They're like, why are they doing this? But it was also attractive. They had such a high view of human sexuality, the human image bearer of God, and therefore human marriage and what God pictures as the gospel in marriage, that it, it was a radical sexual counterculture. They had high, stringent, strict sexual ethics. But here's the fifth thing. They had a radical sense of forgiveness and non-retaliation. That is that when the Christians were persecuted, and they were persecuted, they didn't rally up a bunch of Christians and go back and exact revenge. Now, these are these five features. I'm going to stop for a minute and be political for a second, okay? Because I want you to see how radically counterculture the gospel is. Those first four I mentioned, right? Right? Racial reconciliation. Economic equality and reconciliation. Anti-abortion, or care for the unborn and the child. People not not protected. And then high, strict sexual ethics, right? Most conservatives love two of those. Most liberals love two of those. And if if you're a good Democrat, you love the first two. Racial reconciliation. Economic equality. If you're a good conservative in the room, you're like, anti-abortion, right? Get it? High sexual conservative ethics, right? And most people I know who would call themselves Christians on one side or the other wish they could kind of ignore the other two for the sake of their two. And notice what the first Christians did. What more powerful way to break through the culture than to say with confidence, We are not loyal to a political affiliation. We are loyal to a king and kingdom that is eternal. What a radical, category-bursting, literally world-changing movement. But the fifth one, the capstone, is the thing that we see the most visible here in the book of Jonah. They had a radical experience of forgiveness and non-retaliation. If you beat them up, They didn't come beat up your people. They forgave you. They counted the loss and moved on. You see this in Jonah. In the end, the Lord will have mercy on whomever he pleases to have mercy. And Jonah hates that. It messes with his categories. He thinks that God should fit into neat categories for him, and the radical grace of God destroys them. The last category is, is the one that God uses to expose Jonah, because while I can tell you that maybe a, a political you know affiliation likes two of those and doesn't like the other two, I, I, I quote one of my mentors: I don't know who, I don't know which one experiences non-retaliation. I mean, tell me what that political party is. I, I'm jumping on that one, but that's none of us, right? That's not that is not our instinct. You say something bad about my team. Well, okay, this is where I say something bad about your team. Oh, you have, a news, you have a news conglomerate that says bad stuff about my team? You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to start my own news conglomerate and say bad stuff about your team, right? Like this is non-retaliation. This is radical. And yet it is the thing that exposes Jonah. If I could push on one thing, I would say that I know that there are places where you have a difficult time forgiving. And I know this because it, it's probably hindering your ability to be on mission, to live as a messenger of the gospel for the world. But there's something that happens when we realize that the gospel transcends our preconceived notions of forgiveness, of vengeance, and avoidance. And when we seek what Christ has done for us and recognize it, realize that it's been paid for, we look to him, it starts to, piece by piece, slowly kind of evaporate, evaporate the hurt. It begins to drain away the anger. And piece by piece, you can pay There's a book by Dan Hamilton, I'll end on this, entitled Forgiveness. And this story might resonate with some of you. It says, once upon a time I was engaged to a young woman who changed her mind. I forgave her, but I could not send away my emotions in a single moment with a single decision and effort. He says it took an entire year and I was able to forgive her in small sums over the course of a year. I paid for it whenever I spoke with her and refrained from rehashing the past. I paid a little forgiveness whenever I saw her with another man and didn't respond in anger. I paid for it when I had to renounce jealousy and self-pity. I paid for it when I prayed for her as she moved into other relationships. I prayed for it when I praised her and spoke of her value, even though I deeply wanted to slice away at her reputation. Those were the payments. She never saw them. And her own payments were unseen by me. I have no idea what her private trials and payments were, but I know that she forgave me because I could tell. You see, the cost of forgiveness is something that has to be weighed before it can be given. I say this all the time. If you, if you break something of mine, and I forgive you, it doesn't mean that no one pays. Like, if you take my cell phone and smash it on the ground, and I go, I forgive you, that doesn't mean that I blow it off. And if I try to retaliate and make you pay for it, I almost always, not all. I, I always go into the area of vengeance. And I'm like, well, you better give me the new one, right? And so, like, forgiveness is not by ignoring it or or trying to seek payment. It's to absorb the payment. To pay a little bit at a time as best you can. Because if I forgive you for breaking something I own or destroying something that I value, what I'm really saying in forgiveness is that I'll absorb the cost of this. I'll absorb the cost of the hurt. You see, pain is the consequence of sin and there's no easy way to deal with it or pay for it. But listen to what Hamilton says. Would Nails and pain are the currency of forgiveness, the kind of love that truly heals. Just as the original wood and nails and pain were healing in nature and a segue to the resurrection, so also are wood, nails, and pain the currency of forgiveness for us. Have you forgotten what God has done for you? Have you forgotten the depths from which Christ has pulled you? Have you forgotten what you deserve? I know that you've been hurt, and I'm not asking you just to get over it. I'm also not asking you to pay back in vengeance. I'm saying that as we look to Jesus and the forgiveness, that God did not simply ignore sin or exact vengeance upon us because of our sin on the cross jesus paid for it and as we look to him and see this it begins to drain away our anger and it sets us back on his purpose of reconciliation in the world is this hard (laughs) yes absolutely look how much it took for jonah but notice god never gave up on him god never stopped pursuing him even in his unforgiveness Even though he left out the message of grace to the people of Nineveh, the message of God in patient and relentless pursuit of Jonah is one of profound and miraculous, unbelievable grace. And it's the same message that I believe is pursuing you even now. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your goodness, and we thank you for your mercy. Uh, We know that we have never deserved them. Uh, We know that we could never earn them and I thank you for the lesson that Jonah offers for us. But God it would uh, it would just be it would be wrong for us to to walk through Jonah and and miss the profound lesson that your grace and forgiveness toward him demonstrates for us. So if there's some in this room, maybe, uh, maybe just the, the radical and profound grace that God shows to us in Jesus Christ, that just seems ridiculous. Would you begin to show them now, and even, even in the, if it's painful, begin to show them their, the way that they're justifying their sin or, or leaning on their own sense of righteousness. God, would you show them that they may be in darkness, they may be apart from you, they may be running from you. Would you, for these people, begin to demonstrate a relentless pursuit, seek them out in a way that only you can be right there for them when they turn around to look for grace and mercy and seek the kind of forgiveness that Jonah sought out from you. Would you show them how abundant you are in profound love, how slow you are to demonstrate anger, and how rich you are, wealthy God in mercy. Maybe for the rest of us, we're floundering in our own purpose of reconciliation in the world. Maybe because we've got loyalties and categories that just don't fit in with the gospel. Begin to shatter those preconceived notions with radical grace. Begin to show us that we have a new loyalty that transcends all other loyalty on this earth. Jesus, you have done something for us by forgiving us of our sin, by purchasing forgiveness for us, taking the wrath and taking the punishment that we deserve that now gives us a new and profound identity and sets us on a new and blessed trajectory in the world. God, if we've forgotten that, would you restore us? Would you remind us? Would you remind us of this great mystery of your love? Would you remind us of how deep we were in the pit? when you reached in and restored us while we were the enemy. May we express trust and faith in light of this grace. In Jesus' name, amen.